0: This episode is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. So it was pretty sunny in Tulsa for the first couple of days of the tournament, and I definitely relied on my Gooder sunglasses to avoid getting too much of a heat headache. My pair is called Just Knock It On, and they're really great. They're a large size to suit my large head, and they have a golf-specific lens that works really well. It makes things look kind of precise and sharp. I'm not exactly sure how it works. Anyway, gooders are comfortable, stylish, and lightweight, and they are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized in all styles. So try them out and treat yourself to a pair or two. They are affordable. gooder is going to give you 15% off your entire order. Go to gooder.com That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash T-F-E. And get 15% off when you use code TFE at checkout. All orders over $50 get free shipping in the U.S. Again, that's 15% off with code TFE at G-O-O-D-R slash TFE. Look good. Golf gooder. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we have takeaways from the 2022 PGA Championship. So it was a somewhat sleepy tournament at Southern Hills for the first three and a half days. Rory McIlroy caught fire on Thursday, then fell back. Tiger Woods made an incredible effort to sneak under the cut line on Friday, but by Saturday evening he had withdrawn from the tournament because his body simply didn't hold up. And on Sunday, the top of the leaderboard was occupied by names like Mito Pereira, and Will Zalatoris, and Cameron Young, and Matt Fitzpatrick. It seemed like the stars of the game had pulled a no-show. But then the leaders faltered, and Justin Thomas took advantage. He closed with a 67 and ultimately beat Zalatoris in a playoff. It's Thomas's second major and second PGA Championship. To cover all of that and more... I have 3 shortish interviews for you. The first is with Brendan Quinn, a senior writer at The Athletic, who was on-site at Southern Hills this week. Next up is the Friday Zone own Andy Johnson to talk about the course. And finally, you'll hear from Stephen Britton, a golf course superintendent, about the issue of sand. You may have heard that the pros were not big fans of the large-grained, somewhat pebbly sand in Southern Hills bunkers, So I thought we'd get an expert's perspective on that. All right, let's do it. Here are takeaways from the 2022 PGA Championship. All right, I am here with Brendan Quinn. He is a senior writer at The Athletic. He covers college hoops as well as golf. So uh, those are two excellent beats, but we are here to talk about golf. Um, you You can also talk about college hoops if you'd like, I'm sure. But um, you have been at the (laughs) you have been (laughs) at the PGA Championship this week on site covering the tournament, and so for you when you're thinking about big takeaways this week, what comes to mind first?
1: Well, it was so interesting because uh, everyone here the kind of conference the conversation that was just ongoing basically for the last like four days was like, hey. Is anything kind of going to happen? Like, it just had this whole flat vibe for – basically, after Rory got through 15 on Thursday, from that that point onward, this thing just – I didn't think it had a lot of juice. It was just kind of waiting for something to happen. And then, you know, Mito Pereiro just comes out of nowhere and everyone's kind of like, is this actually going to go down this way? Where he basically, if he had shot even par – it would have just been fine today and it would have kind of been a, a lifeless ending to a tournament that I thought kind of overall was a little flat. And then instead, you know, 90 minutes to go in, in the tournament itself kind of doors start opening and things start happening. And you now I'm running around on the back nine and it's mate, wait, maybe there's, this is going to get really interesting, really quick. And that's kind of how it went down, obviously. Um, with, with JT making that move, you know when he when he buried that, that long birdie putt on eleven, the day really changed. Um, and it was so early; I don't think anyone really realized in the moment what what that putt meant. But um, you know, he had shanked the shot what two holes earlier, um, and yeah, he came back with a with a beautiful five iron on ten that which was the same club he shanked. Um, but he missed that short birdie putt. And he was at that point still like kind of trying to just get going. Um, But then, you know, he dropped that, whatever it was, 60 footer right off the front of, of 11 and off and running. He was uh, four under on his last eight holes of the day to, you know, I think a lot of people will be able to say that, that, that Pereira lost this tournament and he did, but you can also say, JT went and won the tournament. Um, Both things I think can be true.
0: Yeah. I mean, he, he shot 67 on the day. That's what you need to do in order to win a tournament. But typically you need to do more than that to come from seven shots back which is what he did. So there is that doubleness to it where, yeah, he certainly did well enough on the last day, but a few things needed to happen. There needed to be a bunch of guys who shot over par rounds, which is what happened to basically every guy who was ahead of him uh, in order for him to have that opportunity. But to his credit, he he seized it. So all that happened kind of, you're describing this tournament that, that was there. there was a sort of lethargic feel to it for a while the weather was kind of weird and slow Mm -hmm. the the greens were a bit slow because the the wind was high they didn't want to get out of control um you know everything about the tournament just didn't quite have that fire and then all of a sudden in the last couple of hours of the tournament it just came alive and so i i what i guess the big question is is it a good tournament now do we remember this as a good tournament
1: man that's a good question
0: (laughs) Like if there's a basketball game that has an amazing ending to it. Right. But it's really boring and horrible up until that point. And I've
1: been to a number of those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, I think it was a good tournament at a at a good to great course. I will you ask, ask five years from now. Um, you know, I feel like JT will probably have a couple more majors at that point. You know, nothing. I'm not saying anything crazy like, you know, not, but I could five years from now, he probably has two more, something like that. You know,
0: I mean, um, that would be amazing for him.
1: Yeah. And and I think this will be remembered as, you know, the one that, you know, winning the second one so hard. So we'll have that piece to it. And then it was also a really interesting look in at Southern Hills, I think, which you guys have covered, you know, as, as well as anyone. What what this course presented, um, it, it's going to take a lot for me to say this was a great tournament, though. But I feel as I feel as bad for the guy that lost as I do for anything else in the tournament. That's like an empty, hollow feeling that comes with, um, I guess, being a compassionate human being.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, talk about the talk about the misery of Mito a little bit. Something that uh, Andy Johnson uh, uh, noticed on that last hole is that Mito was really quick between his yeah. shots you know he looked like everything and, was sped up
1: so here's something that I, I think it's gonna probably make its way into my story but there was like just hitting on that like Justin Thomas so on the so I think it was yeah 18-t it might not have been 18-t now I'm second guessing myself of course but it was one of the one of the closing holes he he's on the tee box he's addressing the ball back behind me one of the women working the concession stands yelled last call one minute. And like, it, it, like JT was pretty far away, but like, he definitely heard like a hair of it. Right. Like it was not r- close to him, but he heard it and he backed away from his shot and he went all the way back through his pre-shot routine. Again, he went up and he stripped it. It was 18. Sorry. So it, it was definitely 18. Um, and we know how that, how that ends. He hit a great approach. You know, he could have made a birdie and one outright, but, made a great par in a a clutch spot. Um, And then in the playoff on 17, as Zalatoris is standing over the ball, a siren went off in the distance and it was loud. It was legit loud. And there's in my mind, I didn't get a chance to ask him about it. I wasn't in his press conference, but I think there's zero chance. He did not hear that siren and, and he stayed put and he pulled the trigger and it was a poor tee shot and that ended up being a birdie for JT a par for Zal Torres and you know i'm not saying that i'm not saying that siren cost him you know a major but um i think it was also a guy in 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 this position for one of the first times um in his career versus a guy in JT who's done this more years and has you know more reps and maybe just a little i don't know competitive and emotional maturity in that moment that like he backed off Zalatouris didn't. Um, And then you see a guy like uh, Mito who, you know, he went up, rushed through his whole routine, took that swing and, and lost the tournament. So, you know, three very different moments um, that I think kind of showed a guy who was ready to win the second major of his career. And that was Justin Thomas.
0: So what did you see from Justin Thomas between when he finished on 18 and when he mm-hmm. started the playoff, you mentioned that you I, kind of followed him. Yeah.
1: I, I saw a guy who just wanted a chance to like get back in the arena, right? Like he just wanting desperately to keep playing. Um, Cause I think he felt like he was ready to go make the shots to, to win this thing. Like there was no, there was no flinching in him. There was, there, it wasn't a look of like, concern or dread it was just like drive like get me back on this freaking golf course right now so i can go win this thing it was kind of that energy when zal torres came back onto the practice screen um as they were waiting for the the finish um i'm 99 percent sure i don't think jt looked at him at all uh when he walked onto the practice screen and they both went through their routines um they both went to, you know, their bags were stacked or standing right next to each other after they went through their their putting um or their practice putts. And JT did not look at him once and then got on the back of a golf cart and, and drove off. Like he was very much just kind of tunneled off. And I think like that tournament ended, his round ended, but in him, for him, the tournament had not ended yet. Right. Like he was just still kind of totally in that competitive mode that, you know, I mean, that's that was some alpha stuff there, <laughs> just the, the whole way that he carried himself. And then, uh, you know, I don't know if the broadcast picked up on it, but when he went back through the tunnel and got up toward um, 18 Green to take a cart ride over to 13T for the first hole of the playoff, uh, they drove by the fans, and, I mean, it was like a parade. Like, he's sitting on the back, and people were just just going wild, and, you know, he kind of flashed a thumbs up, and it was like you could tell that the – Like this was sports, you know, like it it was kind of one of those moments that um, it was very much a like just high energy. And to be able to keep your composure um, now, obviously, he pumped his right a little bit, but um, you, you could feel a guy who was very much present in the moment.
0: That is, that approach is so indicative of experience because Mm -hmm. it's so easy in those situations to speed up and do things too fast without even realizing it. And so it takes a little bit of experience to know uh, if I just take this at what I think is a normal pace, I'm going to go too fast. So I've got to take a breath. I've got to slow down. And it seemed like that's what Justin Thomas was doing in, in that situation. And it's something that we've seen... Tiger Woods do in yeah. many different yeah. uh, scenarios in, in his career when he's trying to win majors. It's something that we saw Phil Mickelson do last year throughout the entire round. As Brendan Porath chronicled for our site, he was so slow that it actually annoyed Brooks Kepka. And it seemed like today, Justin Thomas was taking his time. He was very serious, very focused, and intentional about what he was doing. Yeah,
1: yeah and you know, if you talk to... Uh, to Bones about it, like Bones likes to say that he has every shot in the bag. You know, JT has every shot out there, left, right, low, high. He can do everything. Soft hands, around the green. He has every shot you you could want. Um, And he just has to trust it and not be so hard on himself. And if it did, like today, was very much, that back nine specifically was I think kind of the the culmination of like those types of of thoughts where like, you can hit any shot in the book, man. Like, just kind of go out there and just and just do your best, and, and it'll it'll happen for you, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, talk about left, right, low, high. I mean, he hit all of those on 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 the back nine, um, and some of the other shots that he just kind of casually executed were just just ridiculous. The, the, those back to back bunker shots he hit were insane and that that the the bunker shot he hit on uh on six after he hit that just a shank dead right um then put his second one off a tree and now it's time where it's okay other guys that's the end of their tournament right they're going to hit another poor shot they're going to take they're going to make a number that you can't make when you're trying to win a major in the fourth round. He can't take a double in that spot. It's over. And it would have been over if he had taken a double. And instead he pulled pitching wedge from a hundred yards out in a bunker and hit this little cutty pitching wedge to 18 feet. He went up and he makes the putt, right? That's, that's how you do it. And, um, not a lot of people can. So, you know, he's got, he's got the stuff, um, to, Certainly, be you know the right at the top of the the world rankings and, and be a multi-time winner. And I'm kind of curious to see what this does for him in terms of some juice, some um, momentum. You, you get freed up after. I mean, he waited a long time. This is not you know, low key. We all talk about Spieth and Rory and them waiting to win their next major. Like he was getting into that conversation. Like he was kind of there at that at this point. Yeah. And now it's now it's off. And, uh, you know, I think he's got the personality, I think, to be a real like fan favorite type of guy. Um, You know, the way that he plays the Ryder Cup, he's by far the most fiery guy on the team. You know, he gets interacting with fans. He's fist pumping. He's slamming beers. He's he's in it in in that type of stuff. And, um, you know, maybe he could he can kind of carve his his place as a. I, I think maybe a bigger kind of personality. Um.
0: I agree. Yeah. The, the sport needs yeah. a, another kind of superstar to emerge. Yes. Someone who yes. is going to kind of stay consistent at the top level of the game for sure. Now, one of the issues that I, I think JT's persona is a, is a whole different matter in this. I, mm-hmm. You know, one of the issues with him so far, as far as his, the way he comes across in public is concerned is that sometimes he does seem a little bit needy or a little bit thirsty, as as Andy and Brendan mm-hmm. would put it on the shotgun start, and maybe winning a second major will give him some more of that quiet confidence that tends to read a little bit better in public than than this kind of eagerness that he's conveyed so far. Uh, but that's kind of a separate issue. What what's really interesting about JT's playing career is that he has taken so much more of like a traditional route to success. You know, it it took him a while to break out, really, because Spieth was obviously his same, you know, I don't know if they're exactly the same age, but they're around that. And Spieth broke out way earlier and had success mm-hmm. way earlier. It took Justin Thomas a while to get established on the PGA Tour, then to win his first major. And then it took him a while five years, in fact, it was 2017 when he won the PGA at at, at Quail Hollow, five years to win his second major. And what we're seeing from him is this kind of more traditional path to a great career that we've seen stars in the past take when careers were long, and they tended to peak in when players were in their 30s. What we've seen recently is players seeming to kind of peak in their 20s. Rory has done this, Mm -hmm. Spieth has done this, and then kind of drop off after that. It seems like the path that JT is on is a little bit more traditional, and maybe it'll turn out to be more sustainable. That he'll win another major when he's 33, and he'll Mm -hmm. win another one when he's 35, and he'll have more of that kind of like Phil Mickelson type career. I guess that's the hope, is that... You know, you know how Phil Phil Mickelson won more on the PGA Tour, I think, than than JT has to this I mean, JT's point. JT's won a lot. He's got like
1: eighteen wins, doesn't he? Something like that. He's got
0: he's got a lot of wins. Yeah, he's, so he's, he's got, got a, a lot of wins. amount of wins, and he could <laughs> yeah. add a, but His game is going to age well. And just remember, like Phil Mickelson didn't win his majors until he was mature, yeah. and so we could possibly see a really exciting next phase of JT's career. But the thing is, we we always get caught in this, right? It, we 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 see a ma- player win a major and we say he's <laughs> definitely going to win three more. And so we don't Always. know if that's going to happen in this case. It just seems like 100%. JT's arc is different. It just seems like, you know, it's a little more old school.
1: There's it, uh, The thing that really sticks out to me is he seems like there's like so little variance in his game. You know, like like there is the full package. A Like his short game is there. His, everything else is there. Um, it doesn't see, like he didn't win this major cause he's on a heater right now. Like he just went out and won the major. Like that's it. You know, (laughs) when we go back and and, like, think of uh, DJ winning the masters in in the fall um, a while ago, like he won that in the window of being on just a ridiculous heater. If you go back and look at like the FedEx playoffs on, right. I mean, he was just killing it. He he was the best player in the world for a six month window. And then other guys. And Scheffler was the same,
0: right? Where where Scheffler was on a great heater, Scheffler was on a heater. A major, John right. Rom
1: was John Rom was on a ridiculous yes, heater yes, yes. last year when he won at Torrey Pines. Like I don't JT's been playing well and all that, but like he's not just crushing it coming into this thing. Like he was not a trendy pick. On other no, unless you read the Athletic. <laughs> but uh, I, I do feel like his game, like he just won this tournament because he just shot, he just made shots. And and he won and he found a way to win it. And like you can make a case. I mean, this is just totally narrative nonsense. But like you can make a case that that's kind of like more impressive way to win a major than when you're just kind of you're just feeling it. And you you, everything, the timing works out in your favor.
0: Well, he won this major from the bad side of the draw. He got a bad weather draw on Thursday and Friday. He played during the windy sessions on those days, played brilliantly. And then had a bad round on Saturday. A round that had everybody, mm-hmm. I mean most everybody, and myself included, saying JT has kind of blown this one. When is he going to finally close yeah. one of these out? And then he manages to just squeak out a 67 today. I, I don't quite know how he did that because for a lot of the round it didn't seem like he was playing that well. It seemed like there were a lot of mm-hmm. missed opportunities. And so, yeah, as you're saying, this is a a major win where he wasn't exactly lights out and he didn't Mm -hmm. get every good break going his way. And that is impressive. You know, we've, we've heard Tiger Woods talk about this before being able to win when you don't have your best stuff or, you know, a corollary to that is when you don't get the best breaks being able to win in those situations is an indicator of somebody who has a kind of sustainable version of, of success in them. And so maybe, maybe we'll see that from JT who knows. Do you think it's a, what, what what's your take
1: on having his father still as his coach and, and this close to him all this time later, like I've never seen Justin Thomas more than five feet away from his father. And he's now like yeah, a grown they're man. They're very
0: close. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it seems to work for him, obviously. He hasn't made a big change to his swing technique since he has come on tour. He's had basically the same swing. And it seems to be a very kind of versatile, uh, <laughs> versatile, versatile and malleable. I, I yes, combine yes. those two words. I, I um, like the other one. versatile and malleable swing <laughs> that that works in a number of different conditions and can hit a number of different types of shots. There's a kind of natural uh, grace to it, and so uh, it would be concerning if he suddenly went to another coach. Um, I think that a lot of players get caught up in the Tiger Woods model of I've got to make a big spectacular swing change, you know, go hire Butch Harmon or Hank Haney Mm -hmm. or, you know, the the next coach to rebuild my swing and get myself to the next level. Um, When players who are not Tiger Woods try that, they don't tend to do very well. And uh, and so it seems like Justin Thomas is sticking with what he knows in a pretty radical way by literally sticking with the swing coach who who raised him, and um, and so who who can question it at this point? I'm I you know I, I think uh, for him it, it would be a concern if he went away from that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's That's no what... one formula. It, it's a the that... different things work for different people, obviously.
1: It's one of the interesting aspects that there are in this hunt for a major that he's been on since 17. I do wonder like how many other guys would have after three or four years of that been like, we're changing this up here. You yeah, know,
0: that's a good point. You
1: need to back off. Maybe I'm bringing in a coach, whatever. Like they obviously made the caddy change, which paid dividends, but they just stuck with it, which is hard. I like, that's it's almost as hard as changing it is, is believing that what you're doing is the right move because, you know, even without the majors, he finished all of those years since 2017, still ranked in the top 10 in the world at the end of every year. It was, uh, he finished third, fourth, fourth, third, seventh in the last, at the at the year end um, since winning at Quail Hollow. Um, but he just never got to raise a major championship, you know? So there's kind of been this like, weird dichotomy there of like yeah jordan or justin thomas is elite but is he elite you know (laughs) like where's the big payoff that we all measure these things by but he's never really changed in five years he hasn't won one of these that's it
0: yeah yeah he's stuck with (laughs) it and yeah you're right that uh, a less patient player might have might have changed course in, in the middle of mm-hmm. it. And, uh, you know, Jordan Spieth might be a good example of that. Though, though Spieth has stuck with the same swing coach, he certainly hasn't yeah. stuck with the same swing. And, um, yeah, and, and Justin Thomas is an example of how, you know, just kind of being committed to a, a style of play and, and knowing what's right for you. Um, will kind of pay off in the end, um, at, at least for now. Maybe he'll go into the yeah. wilderness for the next five years, and we'll be having an entirely sure. different discussion about this. That's, that's kind of how golf goes. But uh, today, Justin Thomas is is riding high, as is Mike Thomas. So, um, All right, Brendan, I've, I've kept you for longer than I oh, said good. I would. Thank you so much. I'll <laughs> let you get back to your real journalistic work. Um, people can find your work at The Athletic, of course um and work about college hoops as well as golf excellent stuff about golf uh, that you write brendan a true journalist and reporter out there hmm. so keep doing Thanks, what man. you're doing i appreciate it
1: thank you garrett this was this was a pleasure and an honor and i am a big fan and i look forward to grand rapids if any any listeners are out there be sure to come by and say hi because i am uh i'm playing i i will be there with bucket. my boys check everyone else i can't wait
0: This episode is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. So it was pretty sunny in Tulsa for the first couple of days of the tournament, and I definitely relied on my Gooder sunglasses to avoid getting too much of a heat headache. My pair is called Just Knock It On, and they're really great. They're a large size to suit my large head, and they have a golf-specific lens that works really well, makes things look kind of Precise and sharp. I'm not exactly sure how it works. Anyway, gooders are comfortable, stylish, and lightweight, and they are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized in all styles. So try them out and treat yourself to a pair or two. They are affordable. Gooder is going to give you 15% off your entire order. Go to gooder.com, that's G O O D R.com slash T F E, and get 15% off when you use code TFE at checkout. All orders over fifty dollars get free shipping in the US. Again, that's fifteen percent off with code TFE at goodr.com slash tfe. Look good, golf gooder. All right, so what this podcast needs is some takeaways from Southern Hills Country Club itself, the venue of the PGA championship. And who better to offer some of those takeaways than Andy Johnson himself? Andy, could you tell me some of your main takeaways from what you saw out of the course this week?
2: Yeah, I thought, you know, when you look at the golf course, I was thinking this really all weekend. I I can't think of a golf course that, that presents a better test for the modern game than Southern Hills at this point. I think it lacks a little pop on the screen just because it doesn't have an ocean and it doesn't have like jaw-dropping features that really you can glom onto with TV. And you can make an argument that's an essential part. But when you're talking about a pure championship test, this golf course is right there at the top of, of American venues in terms of you know, it, I thought it was very democratic. I thought it allowed a lot of different styles of play to, to thrive, but it also did a wonderful job of testing all the facets, facets of the golf game. And I think it exposed when players had weak points in their game. Um, really what I thought was interesting was, you know, what we've seen recently is they obviously got great weather, um, in terms of Challenging weather with the wind, but I think that's kind of the norm in in May and in Tulsa like you're going to get that kind of wind unpredictable weather so without narrowing fairways without having the greens absurdly firm. Having without using the back tee on every single hole as far back as they could go, you know they moved tees around. They made 17 drivable when they was into the wind. They moved 16 tee up when they, you know, they moved 13 tee up so people could get home and two. Like they did not try to curb scoring. They did not try to manipulate a number. And yet the golf course really held its own. I mean, it was a it was a stern test, and I I think. It doesn't have the pop on TV, but when you look at the substance of what it challenge, how it challenges players, I don't know if there's a better spot. I think like Shinnecocks, the one that comes to mind, and you know they obviously had pretty absurd conditions, like they pushed it to the brink at that U.S. Open recently. But that this golf course it really holds up.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I and I was struck by the the cautiousness of the setup this week, you know, because the, they, there was one day when they didn't even cut the greens. And so the greens were running quite a bit slower than they normally are at major championships or even at regular PGA Tour events, and yet five under one. And so this course was still clearly uh, challenging for players, even though the greens were not kept at Really, really high speeds. And that's usually how courses like this can defend themselves is, is through keeping the greens ultra firm so that a lot of the challenge comes around there. But it seemed like throughout the week with the elements shifting around the holes that were hard also shifted around. And so that was, that was like a big thing where, you know, on the weekend, for instance, 16, the par four was really, really hard because it was all of a sudden kind of into the wind. You know, it's, it's really a crosswind, but it was more or less into the wind. On the first couple of days, that hole wasn't nearly as difficult, but number eight, which travels in the other direction, was incredibly difficult on those days. And so because of the shifting elements, and because the, the setup was kind of like smart enough to know where the edge was, um, in terms of what was too challenging or what was too easy, we got to see different holes standing out as some of the more challenging on the course.
2: I haven't done this, and I, you know, I'd be really curious to look at weekend scoring versus week weekday scoring because I think what you saw was really two completely different golf courses, and there might have been players where that north wind really fit their game, and they thrived maybe on the weekend. And then there were players that that south wind really fit their game, and and you know everybody's been piling on Rory, but maybe he just the golf course fit his eye a little bit more with that south wind, or you know, and obviously he played kind of a mediocre round at each of those wins. But that I think is one of the compelling things about the golf course was how how it changed and and everything. And I think like if we go through every facet of the game. You can see why Southern Hills stood up and provided such a wonderful full examination. So on the green, it has very undulating greens and it has small targets, you know, at the green. And that that makes approach play really challenging, but it also gives a huge, you know, it tests your putting. You have to play a significant amount of break. You have to be a really good lag putter if you're, if you have a 40 footer, um, it, you know, is a wonderful test at the green, you know, and you saw players like Cam Smith is one of the best putters in the world. He had an amazing ball striking week. He finished first in strokes gained T to green. I think he was second in strokes gained approach and his putter let him down and he finished like he putted really poorly. And he finished 15th. He couldn't just get by with, a, with one club holding him back. Now, if you look around the green, that short grass and its impact, you know, it sent balls further away. But where I really like, one of my big takeaways was Mito Pereira on the final day. He missed a lot of greens, he was pretty spotty with the chipping. What I noticed was when he was in the rough, he was very good. You know, that extra cushion, that's an easier shot. It's a more comfortable shot. He was really nervous. He talked about this in his in his press conference. He got more nervous every day. And you know where he was really, really bad on Sunday, all day on Sunday? Chipping from short grass. And having been nervous in golf situations, when you have to hit that perfect, that that short grass really separates mediocrity from greatness. And, and sure, like, people will look at it and be like, well, it, it makes that shot easier. It makes the shot easier if you hit it perfect. If you hit it perfect, you're going to end up two feet away. But what Mito Pereira was doing all day was hitting really clunky chips. And he was leaving himself 15 feet regularly for par or 15 feet for birdie on 17. Like everybody's going to talk, oh, that putt finished a half revolution short. Well, it was a really bad chip. You know, given the situation, given you're leading a major championship, like you're, everything's clicking on all cylinders, but that was a microcosm of the entire day. If he was on short grass, that chip, those chip shots were clunky all day. And it started on the first hole, if I, if I recall correctly. He ended up short of the bunker and he had a really bad chip to like 15 feet. He might have been in the bunker. but either, neither, all those chips off of that short grass were really, really shaky for Mito Pereira. And it's because, The margin for error is so much smaller when it's short grass versus rough.
0: And if you're nervous, that's when that comes to the fore. You know, like these guys are good enough so that most of the time under normal circumstances, hitting a chip off of short grass is not going to go wrong very often.
2: Yeah. Go watch them. Go watch them around a practice screen. It's it's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, that and, and so this is not to say that these guys are like 15 handicaps who can't properly execute any variety of chip off of short grass. It's just that when you get to Sunday at a major championship, funny things start to happen when you're on short grass because that is just a little bit uncomfortable when you have that cushion of rough or when you have that cushion of fluffy white sand then you just feel like there's a little bit more that you can play with there. Uh, You can swing a little bit harder. You can put your club further under the ball and you're not gonna chunk it. And so you just have that margin to play with. And we could see that with Mito Pereira on on Sunday when he was just – he seemed really uncomfortable with those chips on short grass in high-pressure situations. And he – that – drive you know, you mentioned 17, that poor chip he hit on 17. That was the decisive moment of the tournament. I mean, we can't emphasize this enough. He hit a great drive there. He put himself in an excellent position on that hole. But he kind of duffed the chip. And he ended up missing the putt, but he shouldn't have been expected to make that putt because it was like a 15-footer. He's not going to make that putt most of the time. And so then he goes to the 18th tee. He has a one-shot lead instead of a two-shot lead. And, of course, he double bogeys 18, um, super challenging closing hole. And uh, and so the short grass really played a significant role this week for sure.
2: Yeah. and that, So further pushing back, right? You know, it, the other thing around the green was the bunker sand, and and I'm sure I know you talked to Stephen Britton the, probably. about There'll be this, a segment the,
0: later in this podcast yeah. on the bunker sand. Yeah, but that not, also, not on this specific bunker sand, but on bunker sand in general.
2: That bunker sand that wasn't to tour spec made it more difficult. It made it it mm-hmm. challenged it it rewarded better bunker play. Um, it made them adjust. You know, it made it a hazard, and it also had an impact when you pushed back to approach what tested, you know, it made a more of an emphasis on approach play and driving the golf ball and getting the ball into play off the tee. And like that, that bunker sand had an impact all the way back to the tee because the bunkers weren't good spots to bail out. Like you see pros bail into bunkers because they know it's an easy up and down. It wasn't necessarily an easy up and down this week. Um, The other thing was bunkers really captured a lot of balls. I felt like with the short grass and the bunkers, what you saw was balls rolling into the bunkers, which were ad, uh, unadv- and unadvantageous spots to play from. But then when you go back to approach, it was a challenging approach play course because you're constantly hitting up or down from, from side hill lies, flat lies, different lies. I thought 16 on Sunday was great. Everybody hitting to that, that long iron into a green from an upslope. It's a really hard shot not to hang right. And we saw so many players hang it right, end up in that right bunker. That's where Cameron Young made his double bogey from. It was rarely stock shots with the wind. So it challenged the approach play very, very significantly. Whether you were in the fairway and then when you were in the rough, it was very unpredictable. You saw a lot of flyer lies. You saw balls that came out dead when they thought they were flying. So the rough wasn't predictable and just hack it out rough. It was... I'm not sure how this ball is going to come out. It, again, a full examination of approach play. And then when you go back to the tee, 30-yard wide fairways allow people to hit good tee shots and be rewarded for tee shots. When you get down to the, what we'll see in three weeks, 20-yard wide fairways at the country club, you can hit a great tee shot and hit it in the rough. And that's kind of silly in my opinion, you want to see these guys be able to hit, you know, you go down those fairway statistics, you saw guys that hit 12, 13 fairways. And if you're driving the ball, great. If you're having a great week with a driver, that seems to me like something that should be achievable. You should be able to hit 80% of the fairways if you're driving the ball well. And that's, I think one of the great things that this golf course did was it allowed people to excel. And that's why. You saw some variety on the lead. Like you saw uh, Abe Answer was in the mix because he's a very accurate driver of the golf ball. Now, Webb if you Simpson take, played Abe, well. Yeah. If you take Abe Anser and you put him in, in those fairways are 20 yards wide, instead of hitting like I think one day hit 13 or 14 fairways, he might hit nine. And all of a sudden, those four fairways that he would have hit, that he didn't hit, turned probably into from birdie holes into bogey holes. And that was the thing that I thought, as a whole, it was really hard to go around that golf course without making bogeys. But it was feasible to go around that golf course and make five or six birdies because you were often approaching greens from short grass. It gave people the opportunity to hit great shots. It It was achievable to score... But it was very, very, very difficult to avoid mistakes.
0: Yeah, and and things can go sideways quickly. You know, we we saw guys shoot 65 one day and shoot 75 the next day. And so if you were a little bit off, you could just kind of get rolling in the wrong direction at the course. Now, one thing I, I want to call out as well, you know, you talked about the, with the fairways, you talked about the short grass, you talked about the challenge of the bunkers. I think of a piece with all of that is the way they have approached the trees at Southern Hills. They haven't gone for like wholesale removal. They haven't gone with the Oakmont program or the Inverness program, where most of the trees have been removed. Maybe most of them have been removed because there were a lot of them there before. But there are still a significant number of trees at Southern Hills along the fairways. But there are gaps between them. And so what this means is that when guys miss the fairway by a substantial amount, they often have a route to recovery. But that route to recovery is frequently over, under, around. They have to manufacture some kind of great recovery shot, but they can do it. And they, they see that little space where they can get to the green and they're like, you know what, I think I can pull that off. I'm going to go for that. And what that means is we get to see exciting shots. We get to see guys fail to pull off those shots, and we get to see them succeed in pulling off those shots. Both of those are more exciting scenarios than just chipping out sideways from a forest, which is what happened at Southern Hills before. Now, we heard Brandel Chambly complaining about this dynamic on the telecast, not on the telecast, but on, on Live From, and that baffles me. Because why do you want to watch players chipping out sideways just because it's more difficult when you get to see this wonderful array of escape shots? And, and that's what we saw this week because of the way they've approached tree removal. They haven't taken out all of them, but they've taken out enough so that there are significant playing gaps between them.
2: Yeah, and I think like the eighteenth hole is a perfect example of tree removal and fairway expansion, and we saw it play out so pivotally with the with the closing groups. All right, Justin Thomas in regulation hits the perfect drive. You know, he puts himself into position and gives himself a legitimate chance at birdie because he played the hole excellently. Will Zalatoris gets pretty lucky, hits a tree, kind of spits him out. And ends up, you know, where he has a shot. You know, granted, he's in the fairway. He's in the short grass. But he has trees in front of him. He had to hit a big cut. But by it being, so many people would be like, why is that short grass there? By it being short grass, it allowed him to try to hit a 30-yard cut. If he was in rough there, it would have been impossible to move the ball that much. He wouldn't have been able to get the spin on it yes you wouldn't have been able to manufacture the spin to get that cut to hit that cut shot and it also by having it short grass there it makes that creek so much more relevant and that was a spot where that creek had been kind of diminished and sure enough one group later we saw the impact of short grass not being trees you know if there were trees still there there's a good chance that Mita pereira's ball if it's thick rough and trees Mito Pereira's ball is stopped short of that creek, mm-hmm. and he could still probably have a good chance at making four, but because of that short grass and bringing the creek, and how many shots did we just see that creek and the short grass really play an impact on, on that hole and on other holes where you know it's just accentuated when you bring the short grass to the hazards, just like the bunkers, just like the creeks, bringing that short grass to them so that balls can get to it and not have them stop on the way in.
0: Yeah, agreed. And and I was really glad that the playoff highlighted 13, 17, and 18. Because I think those holes show a lot of what Southern Hills has to offer. I mean, while we're
2: talking, we've been talking about good things. I, I do want to touch on something that I also was thinking about. Um, and I think you, you wrote a piece about the tee box on on 13 and the complexity and the challenge and how awkward championship golf has become at historic venues because of distance and how far these guys are hitting it. And I thought Southern Hills did so many things well. It, uh, and it, it was an astounding test. But it also illuminated just how awkward championship golf is at historic venues. And the lengths that you have to go to make it relevant. You have to have like Southern Hills is a big ballpark. But they needed to make it bigger. And they found these places that made for really awkward green to T transitions, awkward flow for spectators, all this stuff. And you also saw holes where there isn't an option to go back like the 12th at Southern Hills, which is one of the courses most dramatic, most, you know, historically great golf holes. You saw reduced to driver wedge a 470 yard par four that just has this. Great topography that just you know it just drapes over this hill, and it was reduced to nothing. It was reduced to a nothing burger.
0: It was driver lob wedge for Rory. It was Crazy. a flip wedge. He absolutely ate that hole up, and there's just no what, way to nothing defend you can against do. that. There's nothing yeah. you can do.
2: there, there. It's on the property line. The tee box is on the property line, and and it just. This is a historically great hole. It's a hole that Ben Hogan talked about. It's a hole like it is one of the golf golf holes out there that has you know the, you know Southern Hills you know that's a bona fide Southern Hills hole that was reduced to a nothing burger in the round, which I thought was alarming. You know this these are things that like you know it did so so many things so well where they could add the distance where they could make. The, you know, 13 played great because they could add the back tee. 16 played great because they turned a par five into a par four, you know, and they were able to have flexibility. But the reality is if the game keeps going in the direction that it's going, holes become irrelevant. More and more holes become irrelevant. It's really easy to go up as we saw with 16 and 13. When you have the hole built the way you need it to be, it's easy to move up, but it's it's impossible to move back in certain situations, and you see this with historic golf courses all over the place. And you know, I had my cousin who's a casual golf fan, uh, who's a you know he coaches high school baseball. He's a baseball nut, and he's he's texted me about how awkward that 13th tee it was. He's like, it's just really strange. And I go, yeah, like where would you have to put home plate at Wrigley if you were using aluminum bats? And he goes. That's a great point. He goes that, and and he, this is somebody that's not a golf course architecture person. He said, you know, it'd be really cool to see pros play with wooden clubs again.
0: (laughs) You converted somebody. That's a, that's a good sign right there. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's clear that something needs to change because, uh, you know, this week the places that I saw these players hitting the ball in these fairways, it, it was inconceivable to me. And I think that there has been a change in the past five years um, in terms of the ceiling that players have. Uh, uh, you know, the the lengths that they can hit the ball. The you know, it seems like the governor has just been taken off, and in certain situations, they can hit it almost as far as they want to. Just hit a three hundred and seventy five yard drive in in particular conditions without really breaking a sweat, and when you well, start to get to that point, plus yard drives were there this week, a, a ton. And on the first hole, when that was playing downwind, they turned that hole into mincemeat as well. That's another par four that's supposed to be somewhat brutish, that was you know taken down to a driver pitch hole. On the first two days. Now, when it played into the wind, it was a little bit closer to how it was intended to play. But it was stunning this week how far players were hitting the ball on certain holes. And and you know when when you're hitting the ball 400 yards, a par four. What is a par four anymore? Is a par four 700 yards all of a sudden?
2: So so here's the thing. What was what was 16 playing like 550,
0: 540? Yeah, in that range. Five thirty. Okay,
2: so 16 and 13, I think, are like perfect examples. So if you want a par 5 to be a risk-reward
0: hole at this point, 660 yards? So 5 was 660 from its back tee, and 13 was 630. Those holes presented um, risk-reward holes.
2: And it just shows, like, you have to have that space for it to play like a You know, somewhat of a par five that you have to think about. And then when the wind's into it, you have the ability to move forward. So, like, if you start to think, expand out on this footprint idea from this, is that I think, like, you could take away the par fives played like par fives this week. And that was one thing that really helps curb scoring. They weren't auto birdies. You had to play them well. Um, So you need 650-ish yards, and you can adjust up and back based off of weather. Now, for par fours, like a long par four, I thought 16 played really well as a long par four, but it was adjusted from 530 and up. And, and you start to do the math, and it's just inconceivable for any historic course to keep up with this. Because if you wanted to do the same exercise with one, your tee box would be on the other side of the clubhouse, effectively,
0: yeah, some, sometimes I think about what they'd have to do to Cypress Point to make it play properly for a field like this. And yeah, it, it's just uh, ridiculous to, to think about it. Something needs to be done because cor- uh, courses for pros right now need to be so much bigger than courses that are intended for members or amateurs that it's just going to be completely unreasonable for clubs to host championships. They're going to need to build new courses, a set of new courses that you only play professional tournaments on unless there's some kind of bifurcation. So, um, you know, that that's apparently what the USGA has its eye on right now. And and let's hope they act quickly. All right. So we have gone twice as long as we intended to go, Andy. Um, thank you for your course takeaways. This was really interesting. Appreciate it. Good luck with the move. All right, I am here with Stephen Britton. Stephen is the golf course superintendent at the Chevy Chase Club, um, and he also used to work at TPC Potomac. He has been on the podcast before, um, a friend and supporter of the pod. Thanks for being here, Stephen. We were going to talk about Bunker Sand today because it was a big topic of discussion during the PGA Championship. There were quite a few players who... We're unhappy with the state of the Bunker Sand at Southern Hills. Now, having played Southern Hills, I can tell you that the Bunker Sand is just fine. But uh, I thought we would have a discussion about how superintendents go about choosing Bunker Sand, what goes into the preparation of bunkers for tournaments, and some of the expectations that players might bring to this uh, when they come to to play a course. Um, So first of all, Stephen... Uh, What does go into choosing bunker sand? What different types are available? And, you know, how do you kind of
3: come to a decision about what to use? Right. Uh, Thanks for having me, Garrett. Um, Absolutely. There is a lot of testing that goes into testing bunker sands for superintendents. So when superintendents might be doing a bunker project where they're going to be purchasing a large quantity of bunker sand to rebuild their bunkers, say, they will go through extensive testing to make sure they pick the right bunker sand because, you know, if you're doing a million-dollar-plus project, you want to make sure you pick the right sand because once it's in, that's challenging to remove and switch out and expensive. Um, So there's several different tests without going into all of them, but some of the most important ones are obviously a particle size test so in a nutshell for bunker sands you want angular sub angular sand so the way to think of that is almost like broken glass because that sand locks together and bridges and binds together really well which will make the sand firmer as opposed to sand that's rounded that might be like having a gazillion marbles in a bunker And that's never going to lock up, never going to bind together. And that will produce soft bunkers and then subsequently result in lots of plug fried egg lies, right? So, particle sand tests are are, are really important. Um, Infiltration rate tests so, that's how much water the sand can take and drain away. So, USGA guidelines are usually. Nothing lower than 20 inches an hour. is kind of what they're looking for for a standard for for bunker sands. Um, But one of the most important ones is the pentrometer test. So a pentrometer is a handheld instrument with a golf ball on the end. And what you would do is you would take a sample of a sand that you were thinking of using, and you would put it in a container or a a tube. And then you press down with the pentrometer, and it will compress the sand and, and push into the sand and test how firm that sand can be, right? And and there's lots of labs that have come up with guidelines and and specs on like what the ideal results are to have the least amount of fried egg you can have. So that's measured in kilograms per centimeter squared. So for example, anything less than 1.8 kilograms per centimeter squared fails and anything kind of 1.8 to 2.4 is acceptable and then anything over 2.4 kilograms per centimeter squared that's desirable that's that's a good sand right so that's going to be a firm sand that's going to give you the least amount of chance for plug balls in your bunkers so that's always a hot topic right for for bunker sand so that's one that guys will look at a lot um, is,
0: is that the, the basic goal of these tests is to determine how likely it is that there will be a fried egg lie is that the main goal of of the tests
3: um i mean that's an important one because that's obviously one that rubs people the wrong way so the last thing you'd want to do is a project where you've spent million dollars plus to rebuild all your bunkers and then the members go out and play and there's plug balls in all the bunkers and every shot they're hitting in there right so obviously that's a sand that's failing and maybe you've chosen the wrong sand. Um, so these are all the tests that you do to try to get the best sand that, that you can. Um, and so you know, there's lots of other different ones that go into angle of repose. So that's where you have a flashed bunker face um, and the ability of the sand to stay up on the face and not slide down. And and so there's all kinds of different data and specs that labs have, through lab testing that they've come up with that you need to meet to minimise sand sliding down a bunker face. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it when when you're picking a sand. It's not just picking the cheapest, most readily available sand in, in your area. Um, and, and some of these tests you can even do, it's not just for new sands if you're doing a project. You can do some of these tests on your existing sand in your bunkers to kind of see where you're at today, right? Because they evolve and sand gets dirty and organics get into sand as storms go through and destroy your bunkers and different silts and fines get into the bunkers. And so they change over time. So some of these tests you can also do to your existing sands to see what you need to do to maybe improve the, the bunkers that you currently have.
0: So you have worked at a TPC course, a course that has hosted PGA tour tournaments, and in fact, hosted a PGA tour, uh, tour tournament just a couple of months ago, TPC Potomac. So could you give me an idea of what goes into preparing the sand for a PGA tour level event? What's that process like?
3: <clears throat> a lot. I mean, obviously... It varies from club to club, right? Because some clubs have bigger staffs and they can just get more done, right? And other clubs at different parts of the country might have a smaller staff and they just can't do the same amount of detail work to a bunker that others can. Um, but at my club, when we were hosting tournaments, we did a lot. We would, I mean, we were hand-watering bunkers in the evening after play so that you would wet the bunker faces up, and then they would kind of dry down through the night, and then in the morning, they're almost that nice level of moisture or dampness where they raked up, just not wet, but just not too dry and fluffy, right? Um, and that's kind of when bunkers almost feel the best, right? Everybody's played out of that kind of consistency of sand, um, okay. but that took you know that was seven or eight staff members hand watering bunkers in the evening. Um, we were smoothing the faces. Some clubs go around with a whacker plate and they'll whacker plate their, their faces to get the sand firm to mitigate Friday lies. Um, a heck of a lot goes into it. And, and again, when you're hosting a tour event, especially when you work at a TPC and they're owned by the PJ Tour and they have an agronomy department, that sand testing that I was just talking about, they really analyze a lot because... If the bunkers aren't performing correctly and they get feedback from players that might be a little bit negative, they want to be able to have the data to go back and say, well, hey, look, we've done our work. This is how the sand tested out. Here's the pentrometer meetings. They were within the guidelines, the acceptable guidelines. Here's the infiltration rate. Here's the particle size. Um, so it's almost like a bit of an insurance policy that, okay, like, hey, you know, we, we did everything we could to get the best bunker sand in the bunkers. Um, so they really analyze that data a lot, but yeah, it, it's a lot of work to get them perfect. Um, and it just depends on how much staff you have available.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. And not, uh, certainly this is not a realistic thing for, for every course out there, but at, at tour hosting courses, this is, uh, seems to be pretty common practice. Uh, do you have a notion of, uh, what tour players are often looking for? when they look at a bunker sand what what are the kinds of feedback that they give and what are the standards that you think they generally have for their experience in
3: a bunker oh well they they want them perfect and they i don't think they care about the data or the sand they just want the ball to never plug and they want the ball to roll to the bottom of the bunker and the flattest spot it can so they can get up and down, right? Everybody, we've heard about it before where they sometimes intentionally miss into a bunker because it's easier up and down. So I don't know how many of them get stuck into the data of the sand, but they want it as easy as possible. Everybody knows that. And it's, it would, it bothered me when I was at TPC, I'll be honest, because we would try to make every bunker the same, whether it was. Down in a hole in the shade all day, next to a pond where it's always wet, or up on a hill in full sun in the wind. We try to get every bunker playing the same, um, which I think is kind of nonsense, right? Like some bunkers, you know, like little inconsistencies are kind of cool and make golf cooler. And I use, on the last time I was on a podcast, I used this analogy. I won't go into it too much, but at the club I worked at in Australia, uh, there's a great par four there in the six West Hole Royal Melbourne, and the front bunker when I worked there in the 90s was always boggy and always really soft sand, and the back left bunker behind the green was always rock hard, and you just knew. Like, And if you were playing in an event there, you would hope that a good caddy would say, when you're in the middle of fairway, like, hey, if you hit it in the short left one, that is probably going to plug, and it's going to be a really boggy shot. But if you hit it in the back left one, That's like hitting off cement on a downhill, rock-hard, fast green. That's the hardest up and down in Australia. So, like, be cognizant of that when you're hitting your second shot in. But on the PGA Tour, they don't want that. They want it, hey, no matter what bunker you hit it in from the first hole to the 18th hole, they're all going to be exactly the same. You know, Mike Clayton hit the nail on the head. He tweeted out last week, you know, the game's never been easier for professional golfers right now. The equipment is the easiest it's ever been to hit. Balls are the easiest they've ever been to play play with. But the grass is, always, is also the best it's been. In the history of the game, the grass is the best today it's ever been. And the same goes for bunkers. They're good probably almost everywhere they go and play. So for anyone to comment on bunker inconsistencies or them not being perfect in today's day and age, like it's a, it's a little far-fetched, right? It's
0: they're, they're better than they ever have been. That that's for sure. Um, right. But, uh, and, and could you give me a sense of like the, the costs of keeping bunkers perfectly consistent? You know, what, what, what is that? What are the consequences of that in terms of the
3: budget, the maintenance budget of a course? Well, all of that comes down to what diff- what staff members are making per hour and that varies all over the country, right? So hard to put a dollar figure on it. But I-, I think every superintendent you would talk to, if you said to them, what part of the golf course do you spend the most amount of man hours on? is the bunkers uh, everywhere because that's the place where they typically get the most negative comments you know, bunkers get destroyed de- depending on what part of the country you're working in. We just got two inches of rain last night and my bunkers are full of water and totally destroyed this morning and there's 12 workers out trying to put them all together now. And we might get another thunderstorm on Wednesday and it happens all over again. i got to go and fix them all again. So um, hard to put a dollar amount on, but definitely the most amount of – most superintendents would tell you, the most amount of man hours are going in the bunkers.
0: Yeah. And I think this is something that people should keep in mind whenever they hear uh player complaints about bunkers at a major championship venue like Southern Hills that, you know, the, the costs of uh, keeping bunkers perfectly consistent and the same at every single course, no matter where it is and no matter what they're trying to achieve at that particular course that the the costs of that are, are, are pretty profound. Um, but, uh, in any case, uh, thank you for this perspective, Steven, this was really informative.
3: Uh, appreciate it. No problem. Anytime.